The following message was recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Anybody had anybody here recently that not only did the resurrection not take place, but Jesus Christ never existed? Any show of hands? Got a few? Okay. All right. So that's, that's good. That's good. That means this craziness isn't is circulating around too much. That's a good thing. But nevertheless, Jesus Christ has never existed is becoming a very popular sentiment that, that pop culture is starting to spread around. Um, there was a there was an He said there is a litany of evidence that shows that not only is not only is it probable that Jesus Christ never existed, it's silly for us to even think that he existed. And then he goes on and he starts talking about um, how, how the Bible even brings us this kind of evidence. And he uses 1 Corinthians of all places and talks about Paul. And he says, Paul didn't even believe in the resurrection. this message. Maybe you can write him a letter. But we're going to help our friend out by actually unpacking this particular chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul makes a huge case for the resurrection and not only a huge case for the evidence of the resurrection but a huge case for the necessity of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, I want to focus on three points this morning as we talk about the resurrection. I want to focus on three points. One, denying the resurrection denies the message of the gospel. Denying the resurrection denies the message of the gospel. Two, denying the resurrection denies the evidence of the gospel. Denying the resurrection denies the evidence of the gospel. And then lastly, denying the resurrection denies the hope of the gospel. Denying the resurrection denies the hope of the gospel. Now, Paul has spent 14 chapters writing to the Corinthians, right? The 16 chapters in the book. Paul spent 14 of them addressing a myriad of different issues. There, is, there seems to be no bad issue uncovered in this book. He seems to attack the Corinthians on every single front about all sorts of things that are going wrong in, in their church. He, he attacks them or he addresses the issue of division. Nobody's ever had that. But he also addresses the issue of spiritual gifts. He addresses the issue of marriage and relationships. He addresses the issue of idolatry. And yet, as we reach chapter 5, Paul has come to what appears to be the most essential portion of his letter to the Corinthians. Now again, let me say that the Corinthians were loaded with problems. 
They were reckless in how they used the spiritual gifts. They were superficially picking sides um, as, 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 if, as it related to who they would follow, which leader they would follow. I'm with Paul. I'm with Peter. I'm with Apollos. I'm with, I'm with Jesus. I don't need anybody. I'm just with Jesus. And, and, and also, they weren't dealing with and trying to address gross and terrible sin amongst their church, like a son in relationship with his father's wife. They were loaded with sin, loaded with issues. But this one issue has Paul particularly troubled. Word was coming forth out of the camp, out of the Corinthian camp, out of the Corinthian church, that members of the Corinthian church no longer believed in the resurrection of the dead. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, look there. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some would say that the resurrection did not exist. There's no such thing as a resurrection, some would say. It's not humanly, it's not humanly possible. And by default, they were denying the resurrection of Jesus. And this pushes Paul away from just mere corrections of certain issues and bad behavior into a full onslaught defense of the faith. One that we would do well to pay close attention to because, as I mentioned in the beginning, a lot of these things that the Corinthians had trouble, trouble with, that there's no such thing as a resurrection, we got trouble with in our day. We're dealing with it. We're answering those questions. You're watching Facebook and there's memes going across all the time to debunk Jesus, right? And so this is real. So what Paul is addressing for us will be helpful, or what Paul is addressing with Corinth will be helpful for us. So he begins his defense in, in verses 1 through 4. Denying the resurrection denies the message of the gospel. Verse 1, chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul reminds them of the gospel that they received, are continuing to hold to, and in the end will be saved by. Without the resurrection, all of this is being ignored. Every single bit of it. The message or the good news that, that, that brings you salvation, the good news that is keeping you, and the good news that, that first sets you on this trajectory that you're on in the first place is all being ignored if the resurrection is being denied. Paul's point is that without the resurrection, the trajectory that we now find ourselves on is a totally different one because we denied the essence of the message that placed us on the trajectory. So I need to remind you of that message to make sure you don't get off track. Or rather, I need to remind you of the message to get you back on track. Without the resurrection, the message that I gave you of highest, of highest importance is not being followed, is not being obeyed, which is why I need to remind you, brothers, of what exactly that message is and was. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And verse 4, for that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says, I want to remind you of what I gave you of first importance. Proctos 
is the Greek word, meaning chief importance of the highest importance. If this is not established, if this is not settled, if this is not adhered to and confident, uh, confidently held, then every other brick that we lay on top of this foundation is subject to fall and crumble. And what is the message? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, the account of the life, the death, the resurrection of the Jesus Christ, and all of the fruit that flows out of that leading us to salvation. In other words, the most important thing that Paul can give us at this point is not the counsel on division, not the counsel on marriage, not the counsel on spiritual gifts and relationships. It is the gospel message in its fullness because guess what? Every single one of those other things flow from that. Does that make sense? Without this entire message, everything else will crumble under the weight. Is the message of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ of first importance to you? Is it the message that you build your life upon? Are all the other bricks in your life stacked upon that foundation? See, Paul didn't see the resurrection as a negotiable tenet in the Christian faith. He considered it essential an essential element of the Christian faith. The message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection comes as a package deal. And to deny one element, the resurrection, is to deny the whole thing for Paul. It appears that they were, in fact, even willing to embrace the death, which is good, but insufficient. It's not enough. But let's talk about it nonetheless. Jesus died. He died and was buried for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. Jesus died in the most humiliating and, and, and painful type of ways. He was an innocent man that was pushed through a corrupt system on trumped up and politically charged accusations. He was a man so criminalized by the watching public that when Pontius Pilate, the governing official presiding over his trial, or presiding over his case, if you will, gave the public a chance to set him free, or set free an actual criminal, a real criminal? The public chose the real criminal. In one day, he was arrested, he was tried, he was judged, and he was executed. Swift trial, folks. The moments leading up to the cross offered no relief either. All in one day, he was arrested, tried, judged, then beaten, mocked, scorned, crowned horse placed on his head, purple robe given to him to mock him of his of his pre uh, of his kingly presence, given a reed or a sepulchre, if you will, and then the reed snatched back from him and beaten with it, and then forced to carry his own cross. And on the cross, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., he hung. He hung. And he suffered. Severely beaten, severely whipped, severely weary of all the trauma of that day. And yet, that was not the worst part of Jesus' death. Because Jesus didn't simply die. He died, as the scripture says, for our sins. 
The punishment of wrath due to us because of our sinful and rebellious living was applied to the Savior. It was this weight that Christ was feeling as he cried out these words in those last hours. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was that way. Not just simply the weight of the physical, but it was that way that he was feeling. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah explains it for us in Isaiah 53, chapter, uh, chapter 53, verse 4. He says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He continues on later on down in, in verse 9. He says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The Lord, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Why did it please God to crush Jesus? The same reason that Christ cried out the in the final moments, it is finished, as he breathed his last. Because his death was not without purpose. It accomplished something. The salvation of all those who would turn from sin and place their trust in him. The salvation of those who could not save themselves and therefore required the death of a perfect savior to satisfy a perfect God's demands for justice. So while we may not lose sight of the resurrection, let it never be said that his, that his death was a simple act that Christ performed on your behalf. We, don't, we want to boast of the resurrection today, but we never want to undermine Good Friday. Amen? Good Friday was significant for our rescue. It secured our rescue from eternal suffering and satisfied the perfect justice of God towards our sin. But the gospel does not end with Christ's death. And if it did, the good news would not be good news, people. A crucified man in an occupied grave is not unusual. Does that make sense? Going to a grave and finding people that were slain is not unusual. You can find them a dime or dozen. What makes the gospel the gospel is the event that transpired after his death and after his burial. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's what Paul tells us. The cross demonstrates the compassion to die for others, but the empty grave demonstrates the capacity to save others. You can have compassion without having power. Does that make sense? But Christ had compassion and he had the power to do what he set out to do. And the timing also was significant for a number of different reasons, but one in particular reason that it was significant because it showed and demonstrated his power. He said on several occasions, listen, I'm going to raise in three days. Destroy this temple, right? And I'll re-erect it in three days. What are you talking about temple? You're talking about his body. Right? Just as Jonah was in the belly of the well three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man. What are you talking about? Being in the grave, being in the belly of the well three days and three nights, predicting his death and his resurrection. Does that make sense? 
And he did it all in accordance to the scriptures. We read Isaiah 53. One of my first, first seminary courses, because if you, if you guys don't know, I'll share a little bit about me, but I studied a lot of my seminary work just online and listening to dozens and dozens of lectures over like a six year period, driving back and forth to work every day, all right? And staying, and staying up at all kinds of crazy, crazy times like this. So, one of the first courses that I ever listened to was called Introduction to Theology. All right? It was on Bible and how to work. <laughs> that, that just shows I was just grabbing for anything at this point. But Bible.org, right? Introduction to Theology. The professor, all, 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 as I'm listening, he says, you know, and, and, and by the way, the course is great. I don't want to take anything from it. He says that I've oftentimes battled with doubt in this whole Christian thing. I've oftentimes got to the point where I was on the brink of saying, all right, I'm out of this. And going full agnostic or even atheist. And he said, the one thing that I can never lose sight of is Isaiah. He said, every time I go back to Isaiah and I wrestle with Isaiah, I do not leave with no other conclusion, but Jesus must be there. Isaiah 53, he speaks to the crucifixion almost as if he is dead. And he is writing seven centuries before he died. And he tried. Isaiah 53, if you read it, you would think that Isaiah had a front row seat to the crucifixion. So Jesus died in accordance to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. And to deny either the crucifixion or the resurrection is to deny the full display of the gospel. You cannot have one without the other. Denying the resurrection denies the evidence of the gospel. So some simply believe that, that if they can't explain something, then it can't have happened, right? And for those people, no amount of words will be acceptable oftentimes to convince them otherwise. This is true today, and, and it seems that it was true in Paul's day as well. They said, there is no way that Jesus resurrected from the dead. We haven't seen it. Matter of fact, there's no such thing as a resurrection from the dead because we haven't seen it. So it's not possible. And so Paul does, does the Corinthians a favor. He settles, he settles them in a historical Christ with a historical resurrection. He doesn't just say, well, I mean, you just gotta feel it, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you struggle with this, but just, you know, if you just feel the resurrection, that should be sufficient. No, he actually gives them factual evidence to settle them in the resurrection. Verse 5 through 11, Paul tells the Corinthians that they are literally just ignoring clear evidence by denying the resurrection of the dead as possible. He says in verse 5 that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus. And then to all of the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. The appearances that Paul highlights are important. He names three people amongst all the other people that seen Jesus. One, Peter. Two, James. And three, himself. 
All of those are very significant for us to learn from. For example, when you look at Peter, he's our coward. Sorry, Peter. But he's our coward in the story. If you, if you were to go back and read the accounts of Jesus' final days leading up to his crucifixion or his final day leading up to his crucifixion, you will ultimately not find a bigger display of cowardice in the scriptures than you will with Peter. He denies he knows him on three separate occasions. He intentionally creates distance between himself and Jesus. But what happens after the resurrection? He becomes the boldest of the bunch. How does that happen? What changed him? Acts chapter 5. Matter of fact, if you got Bibles, turn there real quick. Verse 27 through 32. Chapter 5, verse 27 through 32. And it reads, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now Peter is speaking to the very people that if you were to ask them, if, you, if those people were to ask them something about Jesus about 55 days ago, 60 days ago, Peter would count. Peter would say, I don't know what you're talking about, and what you're talking about. And now he's saying, listen, you do whatever you gotta do with us, but we gotta all get out. What changed? Peter just get a motivational speech, a little self-help. What, what changed? The resurrection is what changed. Peter said, we are witnesses to these things. And not only for him, but for all of the apostles. These men went from scatterers to people that were ready to die for the cause of Jesus Christ. What changed? The resurrection. What about James? Peter was the coward that changed. James was the mocker that changed. James was the brother of Jesus, and, and the brother of Jesus, or the brothers of Jesus, had fun with Jesus oftentimes. If you look at John, for example, chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths, booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, listen to his brothers. This is, this is Jesus' brothers. Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So his brothers are saying, okay man, sure. If you really are who you say you are, then why don't you go to the Lord? Show them to the show them to God, man. Do all, do all your fancy miracles that, that you've been telling us about. Right? And then Jesus says, no, it's not my time. He says it later on in the verses. 
then they're probably like, okay, bro, sure. Not your time. Got it. But James is in this verse. James. The, the, the same James that wrote the epistle of James in your Bible was in this bunch of brothers that looked at Jesus as if he was crazy. But he says in chapter 2 of his own letter that he writes later on, my brothers, chapter 2, verse 1, James, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now that's a switch up. This is his same brother who was mocking him. Now he is calling him the Lord of glory. What changed? What changed? What changed? New meal? New diet? Talk to me. What changed? Resurrection. You don't have to be scared. It's sorry. Right. The resurrection. James came in contact with the resurrection, and not only did he turn his course of character from mocker to worshiper, but he literally became a leader in the church. And then lastly, Paul. Persecuted. Coward, mocker, persecuted. Paul in Acts chapter 7, when people are stoning one of the disciples of Jesus, Stephen, one of the followers of Jesus, they come after they finish and they lay the clothes of this, this battered and beaten man at the feet of the same God in the first room of the Do you hear me? The same guy that is writing this letter to Corinth was the guy that received the cult. In other words, they respected his persecution of the Christians so much that they laid it down and said, look at what we did in our struggles. What changed? This man went from being a persecutor and a terrorist of Christians to being a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ and the greatest evangelist that the world has ever known, or the greatest missionary that the world has ever known. What changed? He came in contact with the resurrected Savior. Now let me ask you this. You got three guys, one a coward, one a, one a mocker, and one a persecutor. What social power, what social power do they get by cooking up a ridiculous story about somebody resurrected from the grave and then getting beaten, mocked, persecuted for what capital did they get about? What benefit did they get about? What's the pro? Anybody? Anybody got any pros? I mean, sure, you know, in our day you can say, well, they're prostrating gospel guys, maybe they're trying to make some trying to make a hustle or something like that. No, they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't get a hustle out of this. They got hung out of this. They got beaten out of this. They got tossed a wild beast out of this. So what's the capital in cooking up a char, cooking up a story like this? If the story was not real. You can say, okay, well maybe they all kind of just hallucinated this thing. No, I mean, because you got James, you got Peter. Jesus appeared to him different times. Peter showed up first in the grave. And then, and then Jesus showed up James later. 
And then you got Paul when he shows up even later in the old book. So did all of them hallucinate God all at the same time? Or they all around the loose them at different episodes or different times? No, no, no. See, here's the thing. We have to do more work to try to disprove the resurrection than we do if we just embrace it. Does that make sense? And that's Paul's point, is that the evidence is there. And not only is the evidence there for those three gentlemen, but Paul even says there were 500 other people that saw this. And they're alive. You can go talk to them right now. You can ask them about this. And they will tell you that they saw him. That there were women who saw him. There were men that saw him. There were apostles and disciples that saw him. You can talk to all of them if you'd like. And the soldiers who guarded the tomb, they still haven't come up with a body. And the Jewish priests and the Roman government, don't you think that if there was a body, they would have turned it up? They wanted that body to be present. And yet they couldn't find it. Because there was no body. He had ascended into heaven. Lastly, denying the resurrection denies the hope of the gospel. Denying the resurrection denies the hope of the gospel. I want to I I close with a few important statements about how all of this matters to us. Paul, Paul basically brings the Corinthians to a point where he says that the resurrection is so essential, so important, that to leave it out is actually to leave out not just the actual message of the gospel, but the actual hope of the gospel. There is no hope in the gospel without the resurrection. And that's important because we have in, in our day and time, unfortunately, you know, some, some churches that, that, that are trying to minister to the skeptic, right? And so in trying to minister to the skeptic, what they do is they say, okay, let's try to, let's try to reduce some of the supernatural elements of the souls of the Christian faith. Virgin birth, who needs that? Right? Miracles, we haven't seen any. And resurrection, do we really have to have that? Is that really essential? Let's talk it out. And let's just make Jesus just a great guy who sacrificed himself for people and loved people and did good works and did good things and helped the community and showed love and hugged people. Let's make Jesus about that. What's the problem with that? Well, Paul would say the problem with that is that you destroy the entire foundation. You, 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 you don't give people more hope by making the Christian story more natural. You snatch hope by making the Christian story more natural. Now if Christ, verse 12 of chapter 15, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith, Mr. Natural, is in vain. Do you understand? We are even found to be misrepresenting God. We are lying about God. 
Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Paul says no resurrection, no Christianity. Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson was a famous footballer. Anybody heard of Bo Jackson? Anybody? Remember the Bone Nose commercials? Anybody that old? Remember that? Right? Bone Nose football, Bone Nose baseball, Bone Nose hibachi, you know what I mean? Bone Nose everything. So Paul Jackson was 6'1, like 230 pounds, ran out of 4'2, 4'1, That's really, really, really fast, alright? He played for four seasons in the NFL. But he played in the NFL and he played baseball. He was good at he was good pro baseball, good pro football. Bo Jackson had cartoons. I mean, I was when I was a kid, you know, they had like superheroes like Superman and all those guys. And they had Bo Jackson. I was like Bo Jackson. I didn't even care about Superman. I wanted to be like Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson was like, nobody had ever seen anything like him. He was like, he would run super fast, but then he was so powerful that he would just mow over people. Like, people wouldn't even, they would kind of be standing in front of him until he got close, and then they would just. It looked like they just failed, you know, like a, like a fake wrestling match or something. But nonetheless, Bo Jackson, we had never ever seen anything like Bo Jackson. And then he got injured. It was a crazy injury, but nevertheless, he didn't play anymore. Didn't, didn't play football any, ever again. And so it was like a streak of lightning. Before season, we just saw something that we never saw before. And we probably, probably, I'm not sure if we've ever seen it again. I'm not sure if we'll ever see it again. Anybody want to say Paul Jackson was a real? Any takers? Anybody? It happened once. We've only seen something like that one time. But anybody ready to say he's not real? But somehow, when it comes to the resurrection, we think the resurrection has to happen like 20 times when we buy into it, right? People say, well, well, oh, I mean, this is, we've never seen anything like this. If there is a God who is saving an entire world from sin, and he is saving that world through the death of his son and the resurrection of his son, then do you think that's something that we should tune in for every Monday night at 7 o'clock? Or do you think that's something that will happen once and we will never ever see it again? Are you tracking with that? So what ends up happening a lot of times is we are asking God to operate on our terms when our terms are even reasonable. We're asking him to do once in the universe type things every day. But then it wouldn't be once in the universe. And so for the people that have to feel like they, oh man, well we gotta bring this down and make it more natural. Why? God is God. This is the way he did it. I'm comfortable with that. Especially when he gives us all of the reasons that support it and bolster it and that build on it. I'm comfortable in that. I can rest in that. Can you? Can you rest in what God has done? How would you? Let, let me ask you this last question. Paul says, matter of fact, and I'll read it. Paul says, 
Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all most to be pitied. Let me ask you a question. If the resurrection is not real, if the resurrection is not real, how does your life change? Not, not, not how does y'all's life change? How does your life change? If the resurrection is not real, what happens? Why is that a good question? Well, because it probably speaks to where we are in the faith, doesn't it? What I mean by that is that if one day somebody does drum up Jesus' bones, and there they are, and somebody certifies with some type of weird DNA, and they die from Jesus, I'm completely saying that this one, I don't think there's DNA that can do that. But let's just say that. And your life can continue on with no shift whatsoever. Then you have to be in the question, what am I going on as a Christian? What I mean is that the resurrection and that, is that faith in Christ should have a necessary skin in the game so that if the resurrection proved to not be real, your life would completely change as a that the thing that there should be things that you've given up, that there should be a lifestyle, a lifestyle that has been altered, so that if the resurrection was not real, you would be like, man, let me go back to this old thing and start doing what I was doing before this. If you can say after hearing that the resurrection was not real, let's just pick up and keep on moving where we, you know, where we left off yesterday, then Christianity, Christ. Has not transformed your life. Paul says this. He says, if the resurrection is not real, we are of most people to be dead. We have thrown our lives into this. We have put all of the chips on the table. There's nowhere else for me to go. If the resurrection is not real, my life is destroyed. How about you? Have you put your chips on the table? Are you all in in such a way that if it was not even true, that it would destroy your life? That's what the resurrection means. We build our lives upon it. But the good news is that it is real, which is what Paul closes or where we'll close. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We, we have life because Christ rose from the dead. The videos, the testimonies that we showed this morning. They are a product of Christ's resurrection. We rose with Christ. You have life through Christ. And not only life in this life, 
She had life eternally because of the resurrection. Live in that, amen? Hold to that. Fight for that. Don't, 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 let, it, don't let it slip from your fingertips with just slick mane that come across your face and face. Fight for that. Dig into it. If you have a question, dig. The evidence is clear. The foundation is solid. You can take hope in it. You can bet your life on it. Jesus Christ died for you. Jesus Christ rose for you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you. We give you all the praise and glory and honor. We thank you, Lord, that, that your resurrection is real. And Lord God, that our lives are forever changed as a product of that resurrection. That we've been given life. That we've been made alive. And that, Lord God, not only have we been given life, Lord God, but, but and not only is it in this life, but we have been given eternal life, Lord God. That we will only sleep, but that the dead, Lord God, shall rise from the grave with resurrected bodies like the Savior before them. And that we shall be with you and be with Christ forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.